Okay, back to our second theme. Remember, it's been a while, it's been two weeks since we met, but we've kind of tackled our second theme so far, and that is the Book of Mormon was written for our day. The brilliance of the Book of Mormon is they didn't have our scriptures. They had plenty of writings. They had words of Benjamin, but the gold plates were not written for the Nephites. The gold plates were assembled basically when the Nephites were being destroyed. The gold plates were assembled for us. Prophets who saw our day and knew exactly what we would struggle with wrote the scriptures we would need. So one of them we saw a couple weeks ago was the challenge of wheat and tares growing together. And occasionally you're gonna let a tear in thinking it's wheat. We're all gonna do it. It's just the reality of the day in which we live. We're gonna let tares in. Learning to fix that and heal from that and then prevent that is critical. So we saw the book of Mosiah was written for our day. Then two weeks ago, we took a look at the Antichrist. The Antichrist in the Book of Mormon are a pattern of the Antichrist you're going to have to deal with in your day. I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to deal with people who are deliberately trying to destroy your faith. Many people will leave the church and then can't leave the church alone. And they will deliberately try and destroy your faith. And so we made a list of how to combat the influence of those who are trying to destroy our faith. Okay, so let's do a third one. A third powerful example. We're going to stay on this one for several weeks. A third powerful example of how the Book of Mormon was written for our day. So let me introduce it by having you relax your eyes a little bit and look broadly at the book. If this board is 1st Nephi through Moroni, is there anything that just seems odd? I mean, really odd? Right in the middle, right? The whole second half of Alma are these war chapters. Does that strike you as really odd insertion into the Book of Mormon? Why would we want to know about their war? The war in a religious book between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Everything before it makes sense. The mission to the Lamanites, Alma's preachings, his letters to his sons. Everything after it makes sense. The whole book of Helaman is very faith and prayer and repentance and heart and gospel oriented but the war chapters that's bizarre now the way my brain works is i notice the bizarre i notice the anomalies and i begin to ask why why are the war chapters in the book of mormon well let's see if we can see a pattern turn with me to alma chapter 46 Alma chapter 46, verse 1. It starts, let's read it. Anyone want to read this one? Alma 46, 1. And it came to pass that as many as would not hearken to the words of Helaman and his brethren were gathered together against their brethren. So there's a rebellion. There's a rebellion against the leader. The rebellion is led in verse 3 by a man by the name of Amalekiah. Now tell me about Amalekiah. Verse 4. And Amalekiah was desirous to be a king, and those people who were wroth were also desirous that he should be their king. 
And they were the greater part of them, the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. Seeking for power wants to be king. So this rebellion is led by a man who wants to be king, who's seeking for power. Does that sound familiar? You're starting to see, hmm, maybe there's a connection here. Amalekiah is not going to be chosen. When he's not chosen, let's keep reading. Look at verse 2. They were exceedingly wroth, and they were determined to slay them. Verse 5, tell me about Amalekiah. He pulls many people away with his flattering words, and he leads them to do what in verse 7? There were many in the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalekiah. Therefore, they dissented even from the church. Starting to come into focus a little bit. Now, here's the kicker. Look at verse 10. I don't fully understand exactly what this meant, but I think this is the one that just makes the connection for me. Yea, verse 10, we see that Amalekiah, because he was a man of cunning device, and a man of flattering words, that he led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly. Yea, and to seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted. Amalekiah was, had he been chosen as king, it would have ruined the, 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 the liberty that God had established. Can you think of anyone else who wanted to be king, was very flattering, gathers people to him, rebel because they want power, they're angry, they want to destroy those who aren't going to choose him as king, and had he been chosen as king, it would have ruined our agency. Do you see it? Do you see what Mormon saw? The war chapters in the Book of Mormon are a pattern of the war that began in pre-mortal life. Now, why would we need to know this? Why is this in our scriptures? This is the only, James, say it. Well, we're gonna win. This is the only dispensation that will. Can you name any dispensation that was victorious in that war? That what kick Satan out. Every dispensation prior to ours ended how? In apostasy, meaning Satan conquers. Satan wins. Satan kicks the church out. But in our day, what will and must happen? We will win the same victory we won in premortal life. We will kick him out and win that victory. So why, is the, why are the war chapters in the Book of Mormon? Do you see it yet? Why are the war chapters in the Book of Mormon? It is the handbook on how to win the war. Now, long story short, this war should have lasted for one battle. When Amalekiah finally attacks, when he, he's going to become king of the Lamanites, and when he finally attacks, how many Lamanites get destroyed? Thousands. How many Nephites are destroyed in that first battle? 
Zero. Not a single Nephite falls. Should have been over, right? Does anyone know why it wasn't over after that one battle? Not because the Lamanites figured out how to win. What went wrong? The Nephites opened the front door. They did two things that opened the front door and let the Lamanites in. And they are the same two things that we do. The same two things we're doing in the church today that is allowing the enemy to come in. Before we ever jump into this, let me convince you of one reality. Here in Alma chapter 46, let's read it. Sorry, I got to hug her. This is one of my most favorite people in the whole world. All right, Alma chapter 46. Let me show you a reality about the war in, with Satan. Here we go. Jump to verse um, 18. Anyone want to read? Alma 46, 18. Tell me the truth here. James? 46, 18? Yep, 18. And he said, Surely God shall not suffer that we, who are despised because we take upon us the name of Christ, shall be trodden down and destroyed until we bring it upon us our own transgressions. So, right up front, before any battle is waged, tell me the truth he just uttered. The only way we win this war, the only way, sorry, the only way we lose this war, is if we let it. You have total control. No matter how big his army is, no matter his tactics, you have total control over Lucifer in this battle. He cannot beat you until you open the door. Let's read it again. Verse 21. Keep going. 21, 22, 23. Came to pass that when Moroni had proclaimed these words, behold, the people came running together with their armor girded about their loins, rending their garments in token, or as a covenant, that they would not forsake the Lord their God, or in other words, if they should transgress the commandments of God, or fall into transgression, and be ashamed to take upon the name, the name of Christ, the Lord should rend them even as they had rent their garments." Now, this was the covenant which they made, and they cast their garments at the feet of Moroni, saying, We covenant with our God that we shall be destroyed, even as our brethren in the land northward, if we shall fall into transgression. Yea, he may cast us at the feet of our enemies, even as we have cast our garments at thy feet, to be trodden down underfoot, if we fall into transgression. Moroni turns it right around and says in verse 23, are, we are a remnant of the seed of Jacob, and we are a remnant of the seed of Joseph, whose coat was rent by his brethren into many pieces. Yea, and now behold, let us remember to keep the commandments of God, or our garments shall be rent by our brethren, and we be cast into prison, or be sold, or be slain. If we're going to talk about the war against Satan, we have to understand one reality. It is totally lopsided. It is incredibly lopsided. In whose favor? Ours. He cannot win. Now we'll see that in the very first attack, when they attack in chapter 49, it's a slaughter. 
And then we're going to open the door and let them in. So today we're going to talk about how he succeeds. Now, one more scripture before we just move on. Go back to chapter 44, Alma 44, that little battle against Zarahemna where they scalped Zarahemna. Verse 4, Alma 44, 4. Amanda, would you read it? Yeah. Now you see that this is the true faith of God. Yea, you see that God will support and keep and preserve us so long as we are faithful unto him and unto our faith and our religion. And never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed except we should fall into transgression and deny So who determines who wins in the war against Satan? We do. We determine. So if this... If this dispensation is the only one that wins, it's not because we're smarter or better or faster or stronger. It's simply because why? We chose to. Whether or not Satan beats you is not up to Satan. It's up to you. Now, here's what we're going to do today. And this is going to frustrate the heck out of us, but we need to do it. Let me introduce a whole new concept. I think you're familiar with the idea of a type of Christ, right? We study the scriptures and we look for types of Christ. Oh, he's a type of Christ. He's showing us Christ with his life. Well, guess what we're going to study today? The The Book of Mormon is going to present a type of Satan. It's not something we usually talk about, but we're going to study a type of Satan. Amalekiah thinks like Satan, acts like Satan, strategizes like Satan, connives like Satan. We are going to read the enemy's playbook. And if you want to know how he's going to come against you, here it is. Here's the story. Now, it's so frustrating to read because as you read this, you're all going to think about someone you love, and this is exactly what is happening or has happened to them. Watch how Amalekiah does it. Now, let me set the stage. Amalekiah will become commander of the Lamanite army, king of the Lamanites, married to the queen. Now, you know those three groups well enough that if I were to say, let me go into the Lamanites two weeks before Amalekiah shows up. I'm just going to come in before he ever shows up. And I gather the Lamanite army, the proud Lamanite army that just got slaughtered by Captain Moroni when they scalped Zarahemna. And I tell them, in two weeks, you will be led by an ex-Nephite. And you will choose him. You will choose an ex-Nephite as your commander. What will the proud Lamanite army tell me? And how adamant would they say, no way? Over our dead bodies, will a Nephite ever lead us? What if I were to say to the whole kingdom, you're going to choose him as your king? For the first time in your history, there will be a Nephite on the throne of the Lamanite kingdom. What would the Lamanite people say? Over our dead body. If I were to tell the queen, you're going to marry him. You're going to marry the man who murders your current husband. What would she say? He does all three of those. He does all three of those. Now, just to 
set the stage. Let's suppose <clears throat> here's someone who ended up unworthy to go on a mission. Do you think I could go back in their life to a point where if I told them that they would not go on a mission, they'd say just as defiantly, no way, that won't happen to me? Do you think there was a moment where they would say, no way do I not go on a mission? How about a couple who ends up unable to marry in the temple because they're unworthy, at least initially? Do you think I could go back in time and find a point where they would say, no way does that happen to me? How does he do this? How does he accomplish all those things? Knowing his strategy is our defense. So how does Amalekiah do it? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to have a little totem pole, okay? Let's suppose somewhere in the land of the Lamanites is a totem pole of the social hierarchy. We got the king of the Lamanites. We got all the social hierarchy. Where would a Nephite be put on that totem pole? He is going to start. He'll be deep into the ground if they could. He's going to start at the very bottom. Amalekiah will start at the bottom, a nobody. Now watch him crawl up that list and watch how he does it. Let me emphasize. Number one, go back to chapter four. Let's go to 47. Alma 47 is one of the most fascinating, frustrating, incredibly insightful chapters in the Book of Mormon. It is the story of how Satan wins a soul, how he conquers. So stay with me. Number one, tell me where it starts. Tactic number one is? Well, I was just going to jump a little back. I don't know if you're going here, but as far as flattery, were you going to get there? No, but go ahead. I just, like, in my notes here, I just put flattery comes from someone knowing your language. Yeah. You know, it's like I have to, to know what you think, how you think, and that's what Amalekiah does. That's exactly what Amalekiah does. He's like, I'm going to speak to you in the way I know you think and the way I can get you to think. Because, like, he talks to us, you know, to like how Satan does. He goes, I'm going to poke that spot. Yep. So I just wanted to bring it yep. up. You're going to find incredible connections. I don't know if you've ever thought about a type of Satan, but you will find incredible connections between Amalekiah and Satan. Therefore, we have in this book exactly how our enemy thinks, exactly how he strategizes, exactly his tactics. So tell me tactic number one. Verse one, tactic number one. So common. He stirs you up. To anger. That's how it starts. He stirs the, Lamanite, the Lamanites up to anger against the people of the Nephites. Now, fast we won't do this today, but the two things the Nephites do that open the door to the Lamanites, guess what? Both of them have to do with being stirred up to anger. The first one is stirred up to anger amongst ourselves. If Satan, who's the enemy down there in the south, can get me convinced that my spouse is my enemy, my children, my parents, 
other church members, if he can get me to think that these are the enemies, where's my attention going to be when the real enemy starts crawling out from the south? Anger against ourselves is one tactic. The second one is anger against our leaders. He will stir up the king man against the chief judge. But it always stems from this. Anger. What is anger doing in our society today? I serve on a board of education and every month we have a public meeting and the public can come and speak to the board. And you should see the anger that I see. He is stirring people up to anger. And that's how he wins. That's how it starts. So because he stirred them up to anger against the Nephites, they decide, the king decides that they're going to go attack the Nephites. Now, who is not on board with attacking the Nephites? The army, who just got slaughtered by Captain Moroni when they scalped Zarahemla. Remember when they signed the oath not to come back? So the army says, we're not going. We're not going against the Lamanites. You guys can, but we're not. And the king is angry at them. So in verse 3, it came to pass that the king was wroth because of their disobedience. He gave Amalickiah the command of that part of his army, which was obedient unto his command, and commanded him that he should go forth and compel them to arms. So Amalickiah just took up a notch, right? He went from a nobody to commander of part. Now, do you see his tactic? He stirs up people to anger. They turn against each other. Now, he's going to lead this group to destroy this group. And secretly, he'll, just, he'll turn this group to destroy this group. It's exactly what he does. So, Amalickiah is now part of the half. Well, I don't even think it was half. It was the, the majority with, were with Lahontai. Amalickiah has been put in charge of the army that's faithful and they're going to go destroy the rest. So now this becomes number two. The ones that will not go to battle are led by a man named Lahontai. They go up on top, on get, they go up on top of a mountain. Always safe in mountains, aren't we? Lahontai climbs a mountain, the Mount Antipas. So now the question is, how is Amalekiah going to get Lahontai off the mountain? How is Satan going to get you off the mountain? James? Let's watch it. Yep. Let's watch it. All right. Let's go to verse 10. Can I jump in real quick? Please. So I think it's interesting, though. He stirs us up to anger and then provides a solution. That's right. Always. But the solution is in whose benefit? Always his. He is taking advantage of our anger to control us. Okay, so verse 10, what's the plan here? It came to pass that when it was night, he sent a secret embassy into the Mount Antipas, desiring that the leader of those who were upon the mount, whose name is Lahontai, that he should come down to the foot of the mountain. So what's invitation number one? Might as well try, right? You take a good Latter-day Saint and say what? Could you come all the way down? Could I get you to come all the way down to the bottom of the mountain? And some go, don't they? But many, especially, especially the ones who took the effort to climb the mountain, say what to that invitation? No. 
I will not come down. Verse 11, it came to pass that when Lahontai received the message, he durst not go down to the foot of the mountain. So Amalekiah repeats. He's now second attempt. He repeats it. Amalekiah sent again the second time, desiring him to come down. And it came to pass that Lahontai would not. And again, the third time. Three times, Amalekiah says, can I get you to go all the way? Can I get you in one fell swoop to come off the mountain and go all the way down to the bottom? No, I won't do it. Okay. So now what does he do? I would suggest this is one of the most brilliant tactics of Lucifer. And understanding what he's going to do is crucial to you. Where is Lahontai? Lahontai's at the top of a mountain. He won't come all the way down. So let's read verse 12. And this is where the music, the drums are just beating as we read this. Ready? Can you feel it? Verse 12. Who'll read it for me? Alma 47, 12. And it came to pass that when Amalekiah found that he could not get Lahontai to come down off from the mount, he went up into the mount, nearly to Lahontai's camp, and he sent again the fourth time his message unto Lahontai, desiring that he would come down and that he would bring his guards. So tell me what's the tactic here. You don't have to come all the way down. Not tonight. You don't have to come all the way down. Just come down a little and bring your guards. Tell me what he's going to do. Tell me what Satan is going to do. He's going to get you to feel safe in coming down just a little. It is his most brilliant tactic. If I can't get you to go all the way, can I get you to come down one step? Can you compromise one little thing? Would you look at something you've never, ever looked at, but it won't hurt you. Just one look won't hurt, right? It's always that gets you to feel safe in coming down one step. It's that one step that is the most dangerous to you. It's not the last step. It's the first step down from the mountain that is the secret. If he can get you to come down one step and feel like nothing's wrong, there's nothing wrong with this. He's won a great victory. So tactic number two, come down just a little and bring your guards. Now, saddest verse in this whole story is the first part of verse, seven, the verse 13. It came to pass that when Lahontai had come down. Now, how's he going to get you to take the next step? What's the next step? There's always a deal. There's always something. He always has some deal for you. In this case, the deal is, look. Lahontai, my army's down here. You come down in the middle of the night and you surround them and we'll give up. We'll surrender. 
I will make sure we surrender. You will be in charge of the army. And the only thing he asked, look at the end of verse 13. The only thing he asked was what? Make me second in command. I will surrender. You're in charge. I'm second. And if you don't want to go against the Nephites, we won't. You'll be in charge. Tell me where Lahontai went that night. The one place he vowed three times he would never go. Thinking what? What's he thinking this time? This is a good idea. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Now, the sad reality is that exa that's exactly what happens. Lahontai is in charge. Amalekai is number two. And then verse 18. You need to emphasize 18. So true. Tell me what happens in 18. Lahontai was poisoned by degrees. Now, let me just have you think about that. This is such a symbolic death. There is no way Amalekiah could have poured the whole bottle of poison in at the first. You would think that's how you kill a guy, right? Just pour the whole bottle of poison in. It wouldn't work. It won't work if you do that, because why? Tell me what the human body will do with a whole bottle of poison. My body will say what? This is poison and it'll reject it. So tell me what's the thinking of that first drop? What's the purpose of putting that first drop of poison in? You tell the body this isn't, see, there it is. You tell the body not to reject this amount of poison. It's safe, it won't hurt you. And then if it won't reject that, then what's the next step? And then finally, you can put in enough poison to actually kill it. And what will that body not do? Won't reject it. Because what have you convinced that body? There's the symbolism. And that's how he does it. He just slowly gets his tentacles around your heart. One little step at a time. And the whole time, what are you thinking? I'm fine. Until you're gone. Now, every one of us have watched him do that with someone we love, haven't we? Can you think back to what the first step was? What was the first step? What was the first drop of poison that they didn't throw up? And that was the problem. Now, let me pause on this story. He's going to do that. Well, we got to read the next one. Look at verse um, 19. Now that the number one man's dead, who's going to be in charge? So when Lahontai was dead, the Lamanites, meaning the army, appointed Amalekiah to be their leader and their chief commander. Whose idea was it? Whose idea was it that he lead them? Theirs. Now, the most infuriating verse in the Book of Mormon. Verse 20, it came to pass that Amalekiah marched with his army, and then look at the parentheses insert. Just infuriates me. What does it say, Hallie? 
Tell me the look on his face. Show me the look on his face as he's riding back with the army. It's a smirk, isn't it? Now, I have been a religious educator for 30 years, and I have taught some wonderful people, and Satan has succeeded at destroying their souls. And every single time, Satan looks at me, and guess what look he gives me? That smirk. That smirk. As he rides off with people I love, he gives me that smirk. And it all started with that first step down. And it all started with getting them angry at something. And then he gives me the smirk. You've seen it, haven't you? Yeah, firsthand. Firsthand. Now, let me pause and let me show you an antidote. We'll come back and we're going to watch him do that with the kingdom and with the queen. But let me give you an antidote. Let me give you what I think is one of the greatest moments in Abraham's life. I love Abraham. I love Father Abraham. I love being from Abraham. Now, I think the defining moment of Abraham, I get it. Sacrificing his son, willing to do whatever Heavenly Father asks. But I think there's another moment. I think there's another moment why I love Abraham. Turn to Genesis 13. Lot is living with Abraham, and they're very big, and both of them are very influential. And so Abraham says to Lot in verse 8, Let there be no, this is Genesis 13, 8, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So verse 11, Lot chose for him the plain of Jordan. Verse 12, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan. So they separated. Now look at the very next sentence in verse 12. Here it starts. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. That's step one. I just need to get you looking. You don't have to go there. You don't have to live there. Just look. Just be fascinated by it. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, what does Moses insert in the very next verse? But Lot, what are you doing? The men of Sodom are wicked and sinners before the Lord. Why are you pitching your tent? Now go to chapter 14, verse 12, and tell me what's happened to Lot in between the two chapters. He's not pitching his tent towards Sodom. He's living there. How do you go from pitching your tent to living? Do you see the poison by degrees? I suppose he went and peeked in a few windows. And then he got a hotel room. Then he stayed for the weekend. And then he's moving there. Do you see how Satan operates? Now, chapter 14, Sodom is conquered by five kings. Sodom and the cities of the plain are conquered by five kings. Abraham takes it upon himself to win them back 
Tells you how powerful Abraham was. So Abraham is coming back with all of the spoils, the people, the property, the money, and he meets two kings on his way back. King number one is Melchizedek. Verse 18, Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God. End of verse 20, Abraham paid tithes. Now verse 21, who else comes to meet him? Who comes to meet Abraham, the king of Sodom, who wasn't taken with his people. Interesting. And he has a deal. It's always the deal. What's the deal in verse 21? You keep the goods, give me the people. He had no, he had no ability to make that deal, but he always has the deal. Now, you ready for this great defining moment? This is how you conquer Satan. This is the skill set that will keep you on top of the mountain. Ready? Verse 22, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, stick it in your ear. I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latch. I will not take anything that is thine. So when do you beat Satan? When do you defeat Satan? When you don't take the first step. That's when you win the victory. It is not safe to come down even a little. It's that first compromise of your standards. And you say, uh-uh, I won't do it. And if you have, if you have taken a step down, what do you do? You get back on top of the mountain. Is there room in the gospel to make a mistake and then get back on top of the mountain? But you've got to break the cycle. You have to break the cycle and say, I'm not going to take another step. And the best defense is to not take that first step. That's how you win. Now let's watch him do it again. Let's just complete the story. Go back to the Book of Mormon. Go back to Alma 47. Watch him do it two more times. So he just did it with the army. How does he do it with the whole nation? Um, I got to point out one verse we skipped. Can I go back and point out a verse? Look at verse... Remember in verse 3 where the king put a Malachi in charge of the army? Let's read verse 4. It now takes on new meaning if we're comparing a Malachi to Satan. Verse 4. Now behold, this was the desire of a Malachiah, for he being a very subtle man to do evil, therefore he had a plan in his heart to dethrone the king of the Lamanites. Satan's not after you. What's he after? He's after the throne. You're just a pawn. He's really after the king's throne. So now what does he do? On the way back, as he's coming back, grinning with that smirk on his face, verse 21, the king came out to meet him with his guards. 
How many guards does he take? Do you guys know? Two. If he had known what was about to happen, how many guards would he have taken? In other words, why didn't he? Why did he go out there unprepared? He felt safe. His guard was not up because he felt safe. He, talk about letting in a tear. He trusted Amalekiah. He was not safe. So remember the servant comes down, bows, brings up the sword, kills, Amalekiah, or kills the king. The servants run off. Malachi now does what? This is where he wins the Oscar. Malachi shows up and verse, let's read 27. It came to pass that Malachi commanded that his army should march forth and see what had happened to the king. And when they had come to the spot, they found the king lying in his gore. Malachi pretended to be wroth and said, whosoever loved the king, let him go forth and pursue his servants that he may be slain. What's he stirring up? By using the word love, what's he stirring up? Anger. Whoever loved the king needs to be what? Angry. Whosoever loved the king, let him go forth and pursue his servants that he may be slain. And it came to pass that all they who loved the king, when they heard these words, went forth and pursued after the king, servants of the king. Now they're going to go and join the Lamanites. They're going to, sorry, they're going to go join the Nephites. And Amalekiah is playing on their emotions to win their hearts. James? Isn't it significant that it's Amalekiah's servants, which would have been other fellow Nephites? And then you have, like, the king doing a Nephite-type thing of, like, raising them with their hand. So he, that's that obvious trust. But Amalekiah sold them out. Yeah. It's like even his closest friends, even this, like, yeah, my best men. Like, I trust you. Now go do this, and then I'm actually going to double-cross you. Too. You got it. You got it. There's no loyalty. Now look at the end of verse 30. The army which pursued after them returned, having pursued them in vain, and thus Amalekiah, by his fraud, gained the hearts of the people. Let's go march on the city. We will find those murderers. Let's go march on the city. So when the queen found out that he was marching on the city, angry, full of rage, trying to destroy the people who killed the king, what does she do in verse 33? The queen had received this message. She sent it to Amalekiah, desiring him that she should spare the people of the city. And she also desired him that she should come unto her. Now, we don't get this story, but how do you think it plays out? This is the story we don't get, but how does it play out? Amalek, verse 35, Amalekiah sought the favor of the queen. How does it start? I can't believe they killed our beloved king. <laughs> what can I do to help you? How can I console you in these horrible, difficult times? And pretty soon... They're married. And now that he commands the army and he's married to the queen, right in the middle of verse 35, he was acknowledged king throughout all the land among all the people of the Lamanites. He did everything he set out to do. Now, I hope this chapter makes you furious. It does me. 
I hate him. I can't believe how much I hate this man because this is real. This is what happens all over. He stirs people up to anger. He wins their heart and then totally destroys them. He invites them to just come down a little bit and bring your guards. You're safe. There's nothing wrong. A little won't hurt you. You're in total control until you have no control. Now, watch Nephi's summary. <clears throat> I'll make you a little bit more mad. This just irks me to no end. Go to Nephi's summary. 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 22. Let's watch Nephi's summary of this whole thing. That Satan is the author of all these horrible things. And how does he get men to do horrible things? How does he get men to become partners in darkness? Secret combinations. Murder. He, works of darkness. How does he get people to be partners in works of darkness? End of verse 22. Where does it start? He starts with a single flaxen cord. How hard is it to break a single flaxen cord? And what do we say to ourselves when the flaxen cord goes on? That's not hard. I can break through this. I'm in total control. Until what does the flaxen cord become in verse 22? Strong cords. And can I break them? And that's how he does it. Now let me give you a cross reference. Turn to Moses chapter 7. Verse 50, no, 26. Moses 7, 26. Tell me what's going on on the other side of those strong cords. First, we saw the smirk. Moses 7, 26. I beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand that veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And what's he doing? He's laughing. Because you fell for it. Now, do you see why this is in the Book of Mormon? Do you just see Mormon just screaming out, saying, be wiser than that. Know what he's doing. Understand the tactic. Now, the frustrating thing is, I wish it were over, but he's going to do this with the Nephites. We're going to watch the Nephites get angry with each other and with their leaders and turn on each other and open the front door to the real enemy. And it's going to continue until someone finally says, not me. I understand that the most important step is the first one. That's when I have the most control. And I'm not going to be fooled into thinking it's the safest one. It's not. It's actually the most dangerous one. Don't take that first step. If you have, get back on top of the mountain. There's no point on the mountain you can't rush back to the top. That's why we remake covenants. You can go back to the top of the mountain at any moment. But the more steps you take, the harder it's going to be 
to break away and get back to the top of the mountain. What are the chances a 23-year-old farm boy wrote this chapter? And understood this depth of how Satan wins souls. No way. James? I just was looking at verse 36 of Alma 47. And I love how he talks about now these dissenters of the Nephites having the same instruction, the same information of the Nephites, having the same knowledge. But after they became more hardened, more ferocious, drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites. I think that kind of goes back to the poison, poison by, degrees. by degrees. And just that, like, they get to the point that they entirely forget the word there. Yeah. Poison by degrees. Now they're at the bottom of the mountain. I pray with all my heart that you will be wiser. Now, do you remember the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon? We saw a pattern in the first chapter of the Book of Mormon. Remember what was the pattern? Lehi was handed a book and told to read. You have been handed this book and told to read it. And what's the first thing he read in that book? Warnings about destruction. You have now read a warning about destruction. Be wiser than they have been. And don't take that first step. That's the most dangerous one. And yet, it feels the safest. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.